Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey everyone, MB here from the Dice Collectors Podcast. We're an inclusive group of dice gremlins coming together to promote diversity and tell stories through tabletop RPGs. Here's a sneak peek at our current campaign. He told me to watch the queen. The card is in his hand. He put it in the deck. See? See? He put it in the deck. I saw him put it in the deck. No, they're, they're teaching you. The queen is in the deck! <laughs> Oh, we are going to have to keep an eye on you in the city, aren't we? Why is friend being mean to friend? I am looking out for their safety. Special doesn't mean safe. If you want to hear more, you can listen to us on Anchor, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Dice Collectors for updates. And from there, you can join our Patreon and Discord for extra content and community fun. See you soon, and keep rolling those dice. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of tabletop journeys we are really excited to be back from vacation i I say that every time we are just a super excitable bunch Uh, but we're really glad to be back from our summer vacation i know that uh that it was absolutely fabulous we are also really really bad at taking vacations so uh uh you'll hear about our our patreon at the end of the episode today uh there is some patreon exclusive content that you can dial into this just in Came out of vacation just to record it. Just to record it, exactly. Well, I mean, that's also because Wizards of the Coast decided to go ahead and drop a bombshell about Strixhaven. But what are you going to do when that happens? So anyway, Glenn, Luanika, fabulous as always to go ahead and see you today. And we have another awesome guest joining us today uh, for today's episode. Uh, Everybody, we'd like to introduce you to Rick from the Snapping Dragon Tavern. Uh, Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And it feels like it has taken so long to go ahead and uh, and get this episode <laughs> together. I'm really glad that it's finally coming together. Yeah, me too. Can you introduce your podcast uh, for our listeners a little bit? Uh, uh, basically, the podcast is a weekly podcast. Uh, I release uh, live play episodes on Mondays and a chat episode on Thursdays. The live play is actually live streamed on Twitch at the Snapping Dragon Tavern on Twitch. And that's on uh, Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Awesome. Cool. Well, really glad to have you. Uh, and uh, today we're going to be diving into a discussion all about various facets of magic items. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. 
and we're going to be talking about magic items and how to how to incorporate them into your campaign. Sort of what's the best way to to bring them in. We talk a lot about homebrewing on our camp on our uh, podcast, and so we're going to talk a lot about uh, how to fashion uh, unique magic items for your particular world and kind of what's the uh, what's the best way to kind of bring them in and what's the best way, you know, some some mechanical things about how to craft them and some thoughts about about how uh, to go ahead and do it. Let's dive in first. Uh, so the first thing that I wanted to kind of talk about was how we use magic items in, in our campaigns. Uh, now, Liwanika, I know for the most part, you said you run a magic light world. And I, I think something that's not going to be a surprise to anybody on our podcast, the three of us sort of form this continuum, right? <laughs> Where one of us is on one end, one of us is on the other end, and then one of us is going to be smack dab in the middle. And that's usually Glenn. That's, normally Glenn is like kind of like the mediating influence between the two extremes that are Liwanika and myself. Exactly. Right. So, uh, uh, so uh, Liwanika, let's start with you. Uh, in your magic light world, sort of, can you talk about why you made it magic light and sort of what, uh, what that does for your world uh, in terms of uh, how does it affect its narrative and stuff like that? Absolutely. So I love a magic light world. And the reason is not because I don't like magic. The reason is not because uh, I don't want to deal with the mechanics of magic or I don't want to figure out how magic can break the game or work around it. There are no mechanical reasons for it. It is entirely narrative. I love when magic items are special. I love when they are extremely unique. I love when they stand out. Excalibur is special because it's freaking Excalibur. <laughs> and in most lore you read, it's the only magic item. A cast of heroes, one magic item. That makes it brilliant. And that's why it stands out. There's a reason why it's a word that everybody knows. It's a reason why Marvel named an entire superhero team after it. Because it stood out. And that's why I go with the magic light world. I never I rarely run a no magic world. Plus, I'm doing a modern, yeah, yeah. but in any kind of fantasy setting, there's always magic. There's always fantastic creatures. There's always some cool things that can be done. There's always magic lore. But in the hands of everyday people, no. In the hands of the player characters, yes, but rarely. A plus one weapon in those settings has a name, has a backstory, has a history. And then I'm able to do cool things with that. So I don't do common items, rare items. I don't have magic shops typically just because I want everything magical to be special. I want it to stand out. Rick, where do you think you sort of fit on that continuum between the light magic world uh, and a uh, a world like mine where, mu where magic is fairly prevalent and sort of uh, tightly controlled by the government? And I'll, I'll get into that in, in, uh, in just a moment. But where do you think you fall on that continuum? I'm probably about somewhere in the middle. Um, I do like the rarity of magic items to be something, but I, I still will give like the common, like the the small common items to players on occasion, and uh, the ones that the ones that do stand out and have a name. Those are the like really, really extremely powerful things. So, uh, for example, in in my uh, live stream game, they just encountered. A shop that uh, is an enchanter shop, basically, um, and the enchanter like only had like three items available at that time because they are. I like to make them difficult to make so that 
they're not like mass produced or anything. Mm-hmm. It's it's like you have to find someone that knows how to do it in order to get it. Interesting. It's not completely almost non-existent, but it's not impossible. <laughs> have have you watched the show Shadow and Bone? Yes, I have. Okay, so this is something that we talk about a lot on our show because I was the last one of our group to kind of watch it. But sort of like how they take the Grisha, they keep the Grisha contained, they're kind of repurposing them as a machine of war for various dark and sundry needs by general kerrigan there but um but so so sort of like that where it's like it's like you don't want to you don't want to have that kind of uh, like magical factory type machinery running in the background where people are just like spitting out plus one swords everywhere right now glenn my understanding and i i, I think you fall closer to rick on this continuum probably accurate so I've been looking forward to this episode for one, because I feel like this is an area that I need work on, but I do have some solid theories. So I wanted to hear, hear y'all stuff, but in terms of working from like that 30,000 foot view where we're, we're just looking at the concepts before we get into the nitty gritty of, Oh crap. Did I give them that plus one sword too early? Um, just looking at the broad view, I definitely see where he's coming from because I want those legendary items yeah. too. You know, those are important. You need to have that. Oh my dear God, I found a fully intelligent, you know, almost its own entity, incredibly powerful artifact sword. That's Excalibur, right? But I also think it's important to have those low grade magic items because when they did away with composite short bow or composite bows, as an example, did away with uh, masterwork weapons or masterwork craftsmanship, they took away all forms of upgrade that aren't. Magic. magic exactly right so you either wield a standard longsword or you have to find excalibur i think there's got to be something in the middle amen good i'm glad you agree uh when you start looking at some of the crit levels of monsters where your attacks start being immune if you don't have magic just any wear creature silver or magic you can get a wear creature as low as i actually haven't done um dungeon of the mad mage but there's a wear bat in it if it's got the same rule that's only a crit two monster Right. So at earlier levels, I don't know for certain if it has the same immunity that a were boar or a were bear or a were wolf does, but I don't see why it wouldn't. Right. So it's important that they get these also just for functionality in the game to a degree. But I also like to create not just magical weapons. I like to homebrew item upgrades before you get to magic. Yeah, I think you're spot on on that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I- I've been working on what I call a battle bow and I put out some specs in it into our chat and some people made some comments on it. But the theory is because, and it's all about item action, right? It doesn't have to go magical to be cool. If you take a bow and you get a gnome to help engineer it. So, you know, it's good and strong right now you take mithril, which is super light and you form it into armor plating over the limbs and you put a fist guard on it with spikes, like a punching weapon. Now a ranger can actually duel with it because he can fire his bow with one action or in one round to change. He doesn't have to drop the bow because the bow's a weapon. Now it only has to be a D four punching weapon plus strength to make it even slightly effective. Right? So now he can with an item interaction, draw his sword, have both weapons in his hand, effectively dual wield. The limbs are strong enough that it can still be counted for parrying, etc., for defensive dueling. 
and it creates a way to make the character class more effective without it having to be magic. And I had to talk myself down, and I'll be honest, Marty Napier, I'm going to call you out for some <laughs> significant help. Ben, Benito also, both of you had some significant input in this when I first put the design out. Ben, you were very supportive, and Marty, you were talking me down because I was trying to make it too powerful. Um, but when you're finding that balance is hard, the whole point of this is I think you got to have a middle ground. I want to have the epic weapon. I want to have, I want to have Dr. Strange's cloak that hasn't chosen anybody in a gazillion years for that character at some point when they reach a specific level. But early on, I, st I still think they need some rewards. I think they need that plus one sword. So they feel that they've got that small percentage better chance and the ability to affect a magic resistant monster. Let me kind of talk about the other side of the coin here, right? Cause uh, I, and I want to, I want to justify is the wrong word, but I do want to talk a little bit about why I run what, is right now probably the highest magic wor world that I've ever run. But it, it really does come down to the story that I'm trying to tell, uh, at least through tier one of the campaign, right? In this world, magic items are so common that in most of the major cities, there are like magic item pawn shops that you can go to where people sell uh they 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 need a they need a fix or they need to fix their house or whatever and so they sell the 150 year old ancestral ring of protection that has been in their family for generations to the pawn shop and then you can just like go and buy them right and they're in various states of disrepair and they're blah 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 like your typical pawn shop but like not just that the other side of that coin is in my world too, where as for every good magical item, there are also probably as many cursed magic items uh, in the world. Um, and a lot of that has to do with sort of the narrative storytelling style that I execute, right? Where it's like, you know, if my characters are taking a long rest, uh, there is a whole kind of narrative interactive uh, section of the game that evolves from that point. And inevitably on those role tables that I use to kind of drive that collaborative world building options in that table can be hey as you're making camp and setting up your tent you find a ring buried in the dirt what do you do with it sort of thing and it could be a cursed ring it can be a good ring that kind of thing uh, just last game um, uh, you know you guys were talking about uh, about kind of the intelligent weapon right the super uber legendary intelligent weapon that has a name it just happened last game where one of our characters uh was digging through the dirt found this rusty dagger that is an intelligent dagger um that he was convinced was this ancient dwarven artifact hashtag spoiler alert, it's not but he's kind of like obsessed by it and so now it's kind of becoming a narrative element where everyone's like oh crap he picked up this dagger this dagger is like is into him like what does he what's going on what's with the dagger um and all these like finding all these magic items is becoming a really big sort of story point uh of the story that i'm trying to tell of like the recovery of all this magic and why is there all this magic in this part of the world and everything like that i just wanted to ask if this dagger obsessed rogue if his name was if the character name was dalton <laughs> no <laughs> no it's not no his, his 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 name is cornelius and the story about why or, his name is cornelius is, is actually really funny but i also play with a dagger obsessed rogue named dalton played by jeremy in lee's game and i just had to throw that out there because he's tried to kill us over a cursed dagger like five <laughs> times i i think it's actually twice now <laughs> it is twice so not five. now that the sessions actually happened so the dagger uh for once of the dagger is intelligent so it keeps talking to cornelius to tell him what were they they were doing something and the dagger was just like you know if you just stab him with me you'll be better off 
you know, that kind of thing. So it starts like feeding suggestions to the character about things that the dagger wants to be doing. Um, the other kind of dirty side effect of the dagger is that um, uh, because of the particular magic that's in the dagger, um, at midnight, the character woke up covered head in toe uh, with hair. And he was a dwarf. And so he didn't notice necessarily right away. But everybody else in the party was like, wait a minute. I can only see your eyes. That's unusual. What happened? And he's like, I don't know. I'm just, you know, everyone's like, is he just being a swarthy little dwarf or is he, <laughs> is something, is something new uh, actually happening here? I'm not really sure. So time to rename him cousin it. <laughs> uh, but again, so all that to go ahead and say that the, the high magic and the high prevalence of, of magic items um, is a core story element of the story that I'm trying to tell. But it is also very much, Rick, to your point, it's also very much low magic items, right? It's not, you're, you're not right. accidentally stumbling across a plus five Holy Avenger. You are stumbling across, you know, like your plus one ring of protection or something like that. The, the highest level magic items are still exceptionally rare and exceptionally well known. Like I, I tell the story about how um, in my campaign, there was no guild system until somebody put in his background that he was a member of a guild. And so I was like, oh, well, crap, now I need to make a guild system. And what came out of that was also that the king, you know, the, the, the king in the lineage of kings that run this particular continent, when he, when, you know, generations ago, when he was, uh, when his family was elevated, um, the seven guilds joined together to make a singular magic item that is the symbol of the authority of the throne. Because it's like, you know, because for the most part, the the guilds, like all guild systems, they have their own like alliances and, and inter and infighting with, with each other. But for once, all seven guilds stood together and said, we want to support you have this thing as a symbol of our support for you. And so it kind of plays to that whole, like, who's really in charge, right? Is the king in charge right. or are the guilds in charge and all that sort of thing, right? You know, where does the king's authority sort of come from? Blah, 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 blah. But that's a plus five. That, that's like an uber, uber magic item. And there is only one of them, right? So, the, so at the highest levels, those items are still rare, but there's a lot of magic throughout the world. And there's a lot of narrative possibility there too, because if you've got that item that's in control of the king, does he hang it on the of his throne as a status symbol or do we put it in the hands of his most trusted agent to wield on his behalf right like his champion yeah exactly yeah whether he's good for good or ill you know is he now the dark knight standing in front of you you know the green knight's a lot scarier or the or the black knight any color knight is a lot scarier if the sword he has isn't just a big sword but it's that fabled weapon that the evil king sent him with now, right. So this sort of gets to like the next point that I wanted to talk about, and I, I think we've all kind of talked about it on different levels here, but at what point, so all of us use some sort of magic item, where do we draw that line between the items that are okay and the items that are overpowered? You know, like I said, like not everyone is walking around with a plus five Holy Avenger, because then the plus five Holy Avenger is not special. Where's that line? Like, is the, is the line like around like the plus two range, or is it really like, nope, Plus one to like Glenn, like you said, to replace the masterwork uh, mechanic that was in third edition, right? Is plus one is about as big as you can get without something extraordinary being the situation. I wanted to touch on the uh, masterwork bit and go into that because I think it's important to talk about the mechanics of five E when we're talking about pluses. Bounded accuracy is such that a plus one can be significant, very significant at tier one. And while it may not seem like it's significant at tier two, it really can be. And the reason being that extra 5% when you're getting more attacks for a fighter, say, or if you're trying to get to that critical hit number that is necessary 
for the for the backstab or the assassinate is significant, even if it's just a plus one. Storytellers, it's important that you are aware of what you're giving and how it works. So for me, in my low magic world, I tend to do more effects than pluses. I would rather give a cool effect and no plus, and it is a magic weapon, or a very low plus, like a plus one and an an effect. Because I absolutely agree with Glenn. I miss Masterwork. I think it was a key element in making sure magic item creation doesn't become an economy, which is the thing I don't like about high magic worlds, is if it's run in a way that magic items become an economy, that's not fun for me as a player or a storyteller generally. It doesn't mean it can't be. I think with the right storyteller, anything can be great. With the right group of players, anything can be fun. For me, I think the answer for storytellers, and part of it is homebrew, and part of it is even out of core mechanics that are in the various books, is selection. Pick these items that have different things. Or better yet, start at tier one with a plus one thing. I like every player having an a magic item. They are the player characters. They are the heroes of your epic. So they should all have something magic. I'm down with that. But not all of those things are a plus one weapon necessarily. All of them should have an effect. It adds resistance to fire in addition to whatever it does. Now, what I do as opposed to necessarily giving them a second or third or fourth magic item is, as characters advance tiers, I simply improve the item because they've advanced a tier and they've had this item with them. They've unlocked something, so I add something else to it. So that plus one weapon now with a minor effect is now a plus one weapon with a minor effect and a medium effect. So they have the same thing. It's better. And I keep advancing it. That's interesting. Yeah. like Tier by tier. That's the Mm -hmm. thing that I'm working on. Now, I have to be honest. If you're running large parties, six, seven, and eight, like I am, it can be a bit to keep track of. So I get why people shy away from it. I want, you know... Hey, truth and honesty, I'll, I, transparency, right? So you can want to do that. But what I have found is players really like that. I've got a barbarian in one of my games who has a scimitar. Why? He ended up with it very early on in tier one. It was exceptionally cool in tier one, much better than him using battle axe and all that other stuff. As he's advanced, he's still using the scimitar because I've advanced the weapon. It is odd. It is unique. It is signature now because it has a name. It has a history. It is the it is the leadership weapon of goblin tribes. So when he beat a goblin with it, they all exalt him as the leader of all of the goblin tribes. So we've now got a eleventh level half orc barbarian who is also the sovereign of an entire island of goblins with two tribes on it. <laughs> uh. My friend, that's sexy. Does that mean yeah, you automatically did that. you automatically gift him with the uh, the feat that gives you a horde of goblins? Effectively, yeah. Except he role played it. Like he actually role played it. Did a number of because I think that's important too. If you role play it in enough, just give it to the dude. Yeah, I mean, he role played it. He w- he won the actual fight, which is rolling dice, hardcore, plastic math rocks, and paper. He got won the fight, and it was him and this dude on a dais with a bear. And they were chained to the dais, had to fight each other and not get killed by the bear. And he won that fight uh, fair and square in front in front of 
the entire group collected group of tribes. He basically was the unifier of, of goblin tribes uh, and took over right, their. There's island. a lot of sexy in what you just said. There's there's that there's a, there's a lot there. But oh, yeah, we get into the into the goblins, just the magic item that scales. I really liked that idea, and I saw you nodding along with it, like right along with him, Rick. So, oh yeah, definitely. I think it was resonating with you too. What did you think of it? Oh, I love I love the uh, the the idea of scaling the magic items. That's something that I haven't really thought about before. That I've already started, uh, <laughs> already started in my brain, starting yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, like what you said, Glid is. Um, I've been looking forward to this episode because I have trouble with balancing the amount of magic items I'm giving. And just the idea. Especially when I'm running two different games and one game I give them a magic item and it's like, that's their main weapon now. The other game I give them a magic item and they're like, okay, well, I don't really know what this does, so I'm just going to put it away. And so it's kind of it's kind of hard to hard to balance. And and I think I think the uh the scaling weapons is is a good way to do that. See. And the way that resonated with me, because I agree 100%, is I just read Magnus Chase. I don't know if any of you have ever read it. It's a no, I haven't. novel based on somebody who's effectively the demigod son of a Norse god, as opposed to going with you know Percy Jackson and the other way. Yeah, yeah. At any rate, he winds up with the Sword of Summer, which is his father's sword, and he can't figure out for the life of him how he's supposed to use it or what he's supposed to do. And it is a God weapon. It is an ancient artifact, but it doesn't know him and it doesn't trust okay. him. I can see that. And until he wins it over, it won't work for him. So it does slowly get better throughout the book. And I loved it. And when Lee was talking to me about that, that's what was going through my head. I'm like, you could take the Epic God weapon. You could make it an inheritance for an adventurer sky on. I actually chose that background in a game that I'm playing. That's uh, acquisitions incorporated related. Um, so your parents left it to you and it's an amazing weapon and it's intelligent and sentient, but it doesn't know you. So it's going to scale up, not just because you got better, but because you've earned more of its trust. That's so freaking cool. I'm using it. And I had to tell you all that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. Yeah. And what, what I think that that concept really allows me to do is a couple of things, both meta and narrative. Meta, it allows me to reward players with stuff that that is cool. They have a sense is going to be cooler. When you hit, when they get a weapon and then random NPC in town recognizes, oh, that's the sword of such and such, even if they didn't have the ability to augury or legend lore it at low levels, they feel cool. Like, oh, wow, I've got this thing now. And then when they, later on, when you do that level up and you're like, okay, everybody, when we come back to the table, you'll have new level, uh, you know, make sure you level up your characters. Uh, and when you're doing the, uh, you're getting ready to start and you've got that pre-list, by the way, your item now does these things. And we're going to do a scene to talk about that in just a moment. They're like, what? And they actually start that session jaw gate and they, and, and, and they dig it. And while they will understand that it will happen, they're always excited when it happens because they don't know the scale you put it in when you need it or want it to. And so uh, you've got that meta. I'm giving you something exciting early, but I'm not blowing the game out with this super cool weapon. And at the end, it's not like I give you that super cool weapon and you toss away that thing that used to be cool. It's It, it makes magic more permanent. And then what I try to do is not give people too much of any one thing. That's the other thing. So I, I like giving a... I figure one magic item, what I give, unless they seek. If they seek and find, that's a separate thing. 
But if they, uh, as far as what I am building into the story to make sure players get them as a, uh, on the, on a meta level, my plan is roughly one magic item per tier makes sense to me. And then I split that up with the types, one weapon, one defensive thing, and one just cool object that does something thematic. One wondrous item. Yeah. How, however, that may be. And then I may seed in the occasional weird, like, Here's a limited use. This is going to be very cool for the next few adventures. Read that as magic whale blubber that takes away a cold effect. No, that was really cool. And I'll give you props for that. Um, I went looking for aid and he had already actually introduced this earlier in the campaign, but I'd missed it. I knew we were fighting a white dragon and my character Bodhi went looking for aid and he specifically reintroduced it and made it clear that I could, with these ingredients from the guy I sought out, create a salve that would make us immune to the first cold attack that we took. So we all survived the first breath weapon. Magic. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't specifically magic per se. It was something we mixed ourselves, but we got it from an alchemist magical guy as a thing. And it was wicked, wicked cool. And I got to say, Lee is great with the way that he introduces that. I'm not usually a fan of the low magic world environment, but Lee does it well and still keeps it interesting and makes it fun. Josh was talking earlier about the magic item found in the dirt that's cursed, effectively, is my read on that, okay? I think, and I want to ask you all if you agree or ask you your thoughts on it in general, so there's going to be a little preamble. I think that sometimes the reason, because sometimes I agree with Lee, and I'm like, we've got to go low magic. This is getting out of hand. I think sometimes the reason for that is that the game has evolved and changed to the point where there's no fear of magic really more either. It's just supposed to be accepted and cool by almost everybody, except occasionally written into a barbarian tribe. But I think finding, why would ev- why should every object that you randomly find be good for them? Should I mean, maybe part of the answer to the magic dilemma is throwing a few more items out there that weren't created by people with the best of intentions. Um, and I say this because it made me remember a magic item that I was actually developing for a LARP that I almost joined that was super cool because it was going to straight up change you. It was possessed with the soul of the dead assassin that killed it. And, it, and that person happened to be, and it could be whatever race you wanted. And that's the way I pitched it uh, because they had different races in the world. So say it was an elf and you're a dwarf. You don't pick up on the curse right away and it builds over time. So, you start getting taller. Your ears start to become pointed. It literally, he will try to take you over. Oh, wow. And become him. So this was like a legendary cursed item. If you didn't find a way to break the curse. And once you realize what was happening to you, the break wasn't easy. It wasn't just going to the local temple and saying, cast remove curse on me, please. Like it had a much deeper grip on your soul by that point. What do you guys think? Do you think something like that could add a little bit more fear of magic items and make them be like, ooh, ooh, yay, it glowed when I cast Detect Magic? So I'm going to dive on that for just a second, because as as often happens, Liwanika says says something that is this nugget of wisdom that I never thought about before. Um, and I'm kind of trying to figure out how to go ahead and transfer it into my own game. And instead of just talking about how a magic item gets stronger over time, I'm kind of viewing the positive, negative, magic, cursed item thing as, again, as kind of a timeline, right? So the dagger that Cornelius found might be 
for lack of a better term, a negative one cursed item, right? But as he puts more of himself into the weapon, maybe a cursed weapon over time develops into a magic item and vice versa. A magic item over time turns into a cursed item, depending on who the wielder is and how the wielder uses it and stuff like that. And how aligned they are. Yeah, exactly. Like how aligned they, they are. Straight yeah. up got nefarious intent and you're a good person. You're not going to get along with it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And not, o- not only that, not only that maybe, but if, if like the alignments don't match, maybe the weapon is actively working against them. Right. As they're that's trying the to use it, part. yeah, and they don't, they don't really, they don't really understand that that's what's happening. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. Until the weapon puts itself into them, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And if that's a hidden piece of it, you don't have to tell them. They can say that they hit, and you automatically take a deduction from their roll to keep it hidden. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, one of the, the hidden mechanics that I use often, and I use in that situation with that barbarian. Not too much of a spoiler because the player actually knows that now, but. Uh, very early on, pretty much the first tier that he had the weapon, I fairly consistently made him roll wisdom checks or charisma checks uh, as need be, and in a few cases, constitution checks uh, as a battle of who was going to be in charge. And while I didn't keep like meticulous notes, it was more of a general sense of he's really up on it. He's winning when it counts. He's giving the he's giving the weapon what the weapon wants because his weapon happens to be semi sentient in the right situations, but denying the weapon in the wrong situations. And he's winning those contests of wills for almost a full tier. So now this is not a situation where the weapon is taken over uh, and won't. He has fully supplicated the weapon to his will. Uh, but I spent a tier of use going with that back and forth. And it wasn't note-taking. That was just a general sense of where this was going uh, and how the player character was interacting. I think that kind of thing is what you're talking about, Josh. If you're doing that, you can do that. Now, table size has a lot to do with it. Again, you're running six, seven, eight. That's harder to do for everybody. If you're running four, it's fairly easy to do for everybody. So that's also why I like kind of introducing them through the scope of the narrative, right? So the only reason why Cornelius found this weapon is because of what he rolled on the roll table during that collaborative world building session. Right, so it was very much a we're, we're in a particular a, a particular pillar of the adventure. I kind of consider collaborative world building like the fourth pillar of my adventures, right? Um, and so it's kind of like we're in that pillar, we're doing that thing. Everyone is rolling on the table. We're letting the dice determine how the story is going to move. And so the only reason why the story moved in that particular, the only reason why that dagger exists is because Cornelius found it, right? So like the dagger didn't exist until Cornelius found it. Uh, so. One thing I know that we wanted to go ahead and talk about and that we were very anxious to go ahead and and talk about was the creation of new magic items and how magic items that are not, for lack of a better term, are not canon, are not in any book. um, How how do we use unique new crafted magic items and kind of what is their genesis and what's what's the tools that you use to kind of generate them um now Luminiki, you were saying that that glenn had a particular handle on this and so uh which surprised glenn i think when i mentioned it to him but that's so um, on his example first <laughs> so i just have this sense and i'm not 100 percent sure if it was at a DD table or other or or elsewhere, but I like Glenn's take on magic and magic situations in general. I think he was masterful specifically dealing with wild magic. 
in the last tabletop game that he ran that I was uh, that, that I played in. I thought it was masterful the way things uh, uh, he described the effects and such like that. So when I was talking about that okay. during our pre-show conversations, it was less on the mechanics of Glenn is great at building X, Y, or Z, and more on the when X, Y, or Z is built. Whoever may have built that, Glenn is phenomenal in the description and the detailing of that magic effect or that magic item and the storytelling thereof. Okay. So what I really was getting to was we're going to get into the mechanics. Like what are the nuts and bolts of building a magic item? Like what are the factors that you look into? What are you ever? I can speak to what you want me to speak to now. Yeah. What I wanted to highlight is that is less than a third of what it takes to make that magic item sing. Two-thirds of everything that we're going to talk about as far as mechanically and how to build it fails if you're not describing it, describing it in a wondrous way. So how you introduce it, where you introduce it, whether it be by collaborative role play or you defeated an enemy in this crazy encounter, think Geonosis, uh, where all the goblins are the Geonosians and the Jedi and the other guy are fighting in the center pit. That's the scene I set up. That's actually the inspiration for that scene uh, was was that. And that's how he got that's how he found out that the item was exceptionally magic. Like he thought it was just a plus one scimitar that he had and didn't throw away. That's when he found out it was specific was in that scene. So it, it's all about how do you narratively describe it is where it really sings. So uh, I think we should definitely start with the mechanics and the nuts and bolts. But uh, what I wanted Glenn to talk about and get into was the narrative flair. When he glens up a magic item, it's a, an amazing thing, and, and like, <laughs> that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get it get to. Thank you very much, Lee, for the props. Um, and I, I I do now understand what you're saying because it's not so much that I'm good at creating the actual magic items themselves because I struggle with making sure everything's balanced and getting all of the numbers right. I don't do math to figure out percentage increase of chance or any of that. I want it to be cool. That's my focus. And that's what you're talking about. And it doesn't hurt to put that before the mechanics. So since you already brought it up, I'll go ahead. Because the game you're talking about, I was running a world, a homebrew world uh, called the Shattered Lands. It had, had a great apocalypse that rendered the world badly enough that magic was torn too. So throughout the world, there were areas of wild magic and areas of dead magic where the, or the world itself had been torn so badly that the, the rules didn't work the same. And one of the random natural phenomenon that could happen in this world, and this kind of comes from rifts with uh, the mana storms that could happen around nexuses and ley lines, is wild magic storms. And these are violent. This is one of the examples of you know coming up with a way to theatrically bring magic alive and this isn't an item but this is one of the things he referenced so um and in the course of this storm it's always at least like typhoon like tropical storm level if not to hurricane guaranteed um and the magic magic behaves differently during the storm and even the lightning itself can cause different effects and there was all kinds of things built into it but it doesn't have to be that elaborate um, when you're not working with a character-held magic item, I think is a key point to make here, that there's two two types of ways we're developing magic. When the weapon's going to be in the player's hands and you have to now contend with it and build it into the scope of your campaign and your challenge rating, the mechanics are really, really key. But if you're coming up with a random ritual that didn't exist or a narratively based magic item that's in the hands of the enemy or the control of the enemy it doesn't have to be as balanced and it's okay for it to be more powerful so at that point like 
the epic description and the way that it affects the world, the players and the people around them becomes more important by a lot than its effects. Uh, silly, well, it's not really a silly, but ritualistic magical, magical item uh, thing that I had in that same campaign was a brazier that they never actually learned the details of because unfortunately the campaign didn't continue far enough. But in the end, the effect was a ritualized raised dead. The smoke from this cauldron spread slowly across the floor and it moved five feet around. Every corpse it touched was raised as a zombie. So now you also had a dynamic battlefield that with stakes that raised as they went. Um, and this is getting a little bit off of the individual magic items, but with what the way that Lee was introducing it, that's the, those were the best two I could come up with to give you an example, I think, of where Lee was trying to go. That, that was it. How it does it is sometimes more important than what it does. Just a plus one sword is boring, to Lee's point about giving them different effects. If you instead give it a simple effect like Sting from... Uh, Lord of the Rings, the where it glows when enemies are about, when you're in danger. That simple effect, although I think Sting personally also did additional damage and was exceptionally sharp in Masterwork, but I digress. <laughs> that simple effect and giving that, timing that glow, theatrically timing that moment when the blade lights up can be just as important as creating the weapon. Rick, how about you? So I, I saw pulling off books off your bookshelf in the background there as we're talking about this. How do how do you introduce new magic items or are you are you strictly a canon storyteller? So far, I haven't homebrewed any magic items myself. Where I find the difficulty is when they find the magic items. This is this is something that I wanted to to ask about is because uh, sometimes when they find the magic items, it's like they don't exactly know what it is mm -hmm. and so they have to try to find somebody to identify it or identify it themselves if they're able to yeah sometimes it like if they're in like a a large dungeon or something they might not get to it for a while and then they forget about it and it's it's kind of a that kind of thing um yeah but yeah i was just i was just pulling xanathar's guide to look up something <laughs> it's got great rules for making your own magic items but yeah so let, me, let me let me tackle on that for just a second because that was something i wanted to ask rick about is because you'd alluded to it earlier about how your players you know you can introduce a magic item, you can lead the horse to water but you can't make it drink right so right. you can give the players the magic item uh, but if you have if you have players who don't have the ability to identify either the ability or the driver to identify an item. How do, how does one sort of make that more apparent? And I think the first thing that I'm kind of thinking about is rather than just having them stumble on a magic item, have them fight an enemy that's wielding the magic item because then they can see, Oh, Hey, that, that sword that the dude is using keeps shooting lightning bolts at me when we kill him. Let's get that sword and make sure that we figure out how to make that work. Uh, so do you find that the challenge, though, is more... So, okay, let me, let me ask some kind of leading questions. Uh, do the characters in that game have... Does somebody in that party have the ability to identify, at least as a ritual? No. That's a big problem, right? Yeah. So that's... Because, again, so it, it, what you're going to have to introduce are items that don't have a command word. Uh, because, if right. they, because otherwise they're not going to be able to... Identify will help them right. wield it. Or you introduce a, a scale of economy where they now have to find and secure the services of somebody that will identify for yep. them. But there are ways you can get around the whole, like, there's no intrigue because they can't identify it. I just wanted to throw this out real quick because I thought about it when Josh was talking. In the instance of the ring or the dagger found in Josh's game, you can add effects. Like, when you're scrambling around in the dirt, pitching your tent, 
you find a small gold ring. And when you pick it up, it feels heavy and cold yeah. in your hand. My specific example, though, is like uh, like we were talking about before we started was uh, I'm running Dragon Heist right now. Early on, they came across a necklace of fireballs. They picked it up. They know it's magical because yeah. they, they can do detect magic. They just can't identify. So they know it's magical, but they've just put it in their pocket and it's there now. <laughs> right, because they don't necessarily... So- so uh, sorry. So in just to, just to kind of round that out. So in game, the characters know that it's magical, but don't know what it does, and so they don't want to like experiment with what is probably an expensive magical necklace, just in case it happens to be a necklace of fireballs, kind of thing. Well, they don't even like these. These are new players, so they don't even know that it's a necklace of fireballs. Ah. They know it's magical. Yeah, e- even even metagaming, they don't know that it's a necklace of fireballs. They know that it's magical. Okay, maybe right. the issue there is they're new enough that they don't know about items like necklace of fireballs, yeah. so they yep. could get excited about ah, it. So they're not right. they're not identifying that if I get this identified, uh, it could make a big difference in the game. They're they're missing right. that date. And I have a couple ideas on 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 that specifically. Three three would help that specifically in the Waterdeep Dragon Heist type scenario that you're dealing with. One is utilizing sidekicks and patrons from from Tasha's. Right. A sidekick might know of or might be aware of, or maybe the sidekick is a noble acting uh, gutter punk who knows a fence and knows that there's a price looking for a necklace uh, uh, that does fireballs. And then they're mm. like, oh, yeah, we maybe missing it. Right. Yeah. You know, or like they rescue somebody in this situation. Like, I know you have the necklace. Where did you keep it? And he's like, I stashed it somewhere. And then somebody stole it. Man, I don't have it. The, the And then the party can step in and decide to help. That You can kind of build in little lead-ins that can give that. A patron might even just ask, hey, I've become aware of an item like this. If you happen to come across it in your travels, please let me know. And then they're going to be like, hey, we have something. Maybe that could be it. And depending on their It'd level of trust, yeah, but depending on their level of trust with the patron, they might either give it up, which is, of course, their choice. Then you give them some reward that they're going to use. So that's a win-win. Or they may have it. They may decide, hey, well, what does it do? They may get into the role play and ask questions about it. Then he can divulge the information. And then they're like, oh, wow, didn't even know. And then, then you can go from there. Right. And the last one that I had is... Send some bad guys. That's after. a good one. There's nothing like some bad guys coming after a, a, something that the party has that they don't even realize is cool. One of them survives. They question him, "Why are you doing?" Or just have a thief try to steal it. Yeah, and he's like, "I will tell you if you let me live. Let me get out of here, and then then let him fess up and bolt." That's uh, and th- those are probably the ways that I would go about it. In that Dragon Heist scenario. That's actually, um, again, not to give away too many spoilers, um, that's actually how I finally got them to continue with the quest once they had the information they needed, <laughs> is having enemies come after it. <laughs> see, see, I'm, I'm much more... Uh, see, uh, so, Liwanika, while I appreciate the, uh, the surgical delicacy that you are using to kind of help Help the player. See, I'm much more like a sledgehammer in this situation. Next time they throw their bag down, have one of the gems go off. Like that's you know. Like, <laughs> oh nope, I'm not. I'm in the middle know? again. Oh wow, so, I'm in. I'm like not subtle about it, especially. Yeah, with no, totally. Players. Yeah, I'm yeah. Very much in the middle. So, but instead of having them all get hit by 
instead of hitting them in the face of the two by four, instead I'll be blatant with new players and I'll take my patron and I'll straight up have them be like anything you guys find, you know, out there that might be mystical. I have the ability to help identify it, you know, bring it here. We'll identify it together. We'll decide together what you're what you guys need, you know, put it, build it in for them. If I have a player, if I have a four player group that doesn't have anybody who wants to be a dedicated healer, I'll create a healer side. Yeah. You could create once they're high enough level, as long as your sidekick can cast second level spells, you can have a sidekick that can identify and having that ability on hand will help them learn faster that oh crap if we properly if we promptly identify these things they could make a big difference in our game yeah yeah and and i have to be honest i mm-hmm. haven't run a group that didn't have at least two players with identifying abilities in a very long time like one of the two games that i run started as pre-gen characters for a, a one-shot game that i turned into a campaign and quite honestly i had 18 characters built for this and the players took three of the characters that had that ability, that had the ability to do that or eventually gain that ability. And and I think we're up to like four players. I don't think there's a day that goes by that one or two players cannot identify augury or legend lore something. It's only 10 minutes as a ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's just, uh, it, it's built in. That is, however, a bit of a veteran step. Players who've played for a while recognize the importance when you're dealing with a newer group, I like the sledgehammer approach uh, as pontificated by Glenn and Josh. I would say this, Josh, Dragon Heist is levels one through five. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's exactly oh, what I was a thinking. A necklace of fireball? I mean, that's yeah. what, 86 eight damage if they fail their deck check? Like, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, so he's hitting them with a two by four. My version was more like hitting them with a fish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, like, like, honestly, the fighter might survive that if you roll back. <laughs> Hopefully he's got enough money to res everybody. It'll be exactly, right. Exactly. Right? You know. <laughs> well, he's got the necklace of fireballs. That should be worth something. <laughs> so all that to go ahead and say, though, uh, uh, just to go ahead and build on what Glenn was saying, though, the narrative piece about that a magic item does a thing as opposed to how it does its thing is infinitely more important, right? I think back to, um, uh, again, to the Candlekeep campaign where the um, the guy that everybody who enters Candlekeep in this campaign when they enter Candlekeep, they all meet the same guy. And the guy is this grumpy. He he's always complaining about the carriage being late. He's always, you know, he's like, he's he's like a like a like a Swiss watchman, right? He wants to make sure that like the time like the trains are running on time and that everybody is happy. Um, and so he has this little magical thing that will tell him uh what time it is, right? And that was all born. I, I don't know how it works. I haven't figured that part out yet because none of the characters care enough to go ahead and take it. So from a rules point of view, what or how it does its mechanically how it does its thing is much less important than the flavor of having a character have a thing that allows them to know whether or not the carriage is late so he can complain about it in the scope of the story so he's got a magic pocket watch so he can stamp his foot and be like <laughs> and be late, grumpy about it exactly. yeah. <laughs> i wanted to also talk about some other things uh your question rick was very good about i'm already in here's where i am at how do i uh, how do I work things in now to get people the information they need? Uh, I And I think we did a good job of coming up with some options. Uh, I had some surgical stuff. Uh, Glenn had some broad stuff. Josh had some 
and they're dead, but they'll know for the future. <laughs> um, but they'll learn. Death is the ultimate teacher. Yeah, I mean, nothing for nothing. Josh you will now roll a new party, but next yeah, time, you'll, next you'll, time you'll, you'll, you'll get it. You find a half incinerated party with half <laughs> with half a necklace of fireballs. We do, we do cover a spectrum here. Um, but uh, what I also wanted, what I wanted to talk about, is a couple things that you can do, and some actionable intel for storytellers uh, to approach new games and new items that they're thinking about adding in as they go. And among those things, it, uh, it, and they do work best in a low magic world, but there's no reason they can't work in a medium or high magic world either. Um, one of those is NPCs recognize the item or the weapon. If you're giving your weapons names and a backstory, just let NPCs recognize them. If it's a sword, it's on their hilt. They walk in, have your town have this thing where weapons must be inspected or whatever, because maybe the Lord is looking for this, this, this important weapon. If you want your party to know that something's important, if they don't think it's important, guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to hide it from the town guard looking. And right. then they're like, oh, you need to come with me. They're not going to take it from them. But then they're going to bring them in. That's telling them that the necklace is important, right? So now they're going in. You can use right. that with any item that you have given them and that they may not even know is all that great yet. You could have them sitting in a tavern and, and have other parties talking about, oh, I remember the good old days when the old Lord used to wield Mohanir and he did such and such and such and such. So they're talking about these weapons. So then later when they find that weapon, they already know there's a story. They already know it's it, it's important. So you can kind of give them that lead in. Names in the towns are close to or derived from the name of the of the magic items you're talking about. Uh, the name of a tavern right. is named after the most important weapon that was ever wielded in the county. The name of the mountain, the name of the forest where it was found, uh, or something like that. If you're naming things after these items, and then all of a sudden that identify or whatever just comes up with that name, they already know it's important because there's a whole town named after. Right. Yes, I like that. There is one thing that I um, specifically wanted to talk about, and that's actually players crafting magic items. Because mm -hmm. mm, that's one. something that I've struggled with is in one of my campaigns, I had a wizard player who decided that he wanted to start crafting magic items. And so I went around with different, different kinds of rules, different kinds of homebrew stuff for him crafting uh, to try to get a balance, but I never quite got there, and I just wondered how uh, you guys would handle something like that. Yeah, that's a really good question, because to be totally frank, uh, the D&D &D 5e magic crafting items are sort of crappy. Let's be honest. Yeah, really Let's be honest. They, they're not well. great. Right? They're not yeah, great. That, that's why I went straight to homebrew. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta tell you, I think the only D&D &D game that has ever done Player crafted magic items justice was three point five. Now this is with the where you put your where you, where you cost experience. Yeah, I said this is, but this is the this is where I have to give the conceit. It is stupid crunchy. It is a mathematical nightmare to do. Yes, it's ugly. But it's the only thing that made sense. Otherwise, why would your character adventure if he could just get enough experience point, sit home? and make magic items indefinitely and sell them. There's no reason to ever adventure if he could do that. So I have found right. that a weird amalgamation of the 5e rules for simplicity's sake, but keeping in mind things like the length of time that they utilize in 3.5 has been very, very good idea. 
And I generally just, you have to do it with downtime so that it, it it's, you got to include downtime in the mechanic. I'm not sure if that's exactly how the rules work or not, to be honest with you. Uh, but I do think if you include downtime and then you structure your campaign to limit your downtime so they're not making an economy out of the thing, but they do get to make one or two items, it's fine. And then you have to understand if anybody plays a Forge Cleric, all bets are off because the actual mechanics of the class are about making magic items. And you're just going to have to deal with the fact that hope to God you have a good player who recognizes they have the unique ability by rule to unbalance the game and they have to make the choice not to do right. And that's easy to present. I'm going to be honest. The way you present that is magic items aren't instant. They take time, right? You're talking about downtime and the time it takes. If you've got a player who's like, I'm going to populate your world with magic items and that's how we're going to fund all of our adventures, have a heart-to-heart conversation with them and be straight up. Look, you got to understand. I get it. You want to make magic items. But if it takes X amount of time to craft one and you're saying this is now what you're going to do and run a shop, you're not an adventurer anymore. You're leaving the party and you're the financial backer. Yep. Right. You know, if, if, if you want to work on one magic item slowly in your downtime between adventures, it might take a long time, but you could get it done. But what you're asking to do isn't practical and be an adventurer. If you want to, and your responsibility as a player is to create a character that wants to be and, and is going to be part of the party. Right. The, the general mechanic was something like one, one week of one, one 40 hour week of work per level of the magic item or something like that. So it, it's like, it's, if it's you want to craft like a seven foot yeah. item, it's two and a half months of work to, to fashion it. <laughs> right. And if you're doing that part yeah. between adventurers, that could be a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, um, that's, that's how I kind of curbed him a little bit is that I, I created these homebrew rules and, it depended on either the level of the spell or the rarity of the magic item, how long it took. And like for like the highest levels, it was like 50 weeks of work. You got to be careful, though, because you could still run into a player like me who once tried to convince Lee to allow me to create a modified version of Mordekin's mansion that was instead Pyrrhal's laboratory. And it was going to permanently keep my workshop and all the things I was doing in it. So whenever I cast it, my workshop was there and my progress was saved. So during all of my long rests, not on downtime, I could be spending my extra time in there working on magic items. And in my mind at the time for what Pyrrhal wanted to do, because he was very much a merchant's son kind of dude and all about commerce and finance, it made sense. But I know the position I was putting Lee in was pretty crappy. So if a player, as a player out there, think about that too. You think it's really cool and you're like, ha ha, watch this. And sometimes we kind of get set into that me against you mentality. And we're like, I get it, but I'm going to break your game and I'm going to put magic items everywhere. And (laughs) And once you cross that line, it's not fun anymore. It might be for you, but it's not fun for everybody anymore. I was going to say the social contract becomes very important when we're talking about this issue. This is where, as a storyteller, you have to step out of, this is what your character is doing. You have to go meta with it and really talk with your players. It's a great session zero yeah. topic. If you have a person who's playing a spellcaster, they're likely going to let you know at session zero, hey, I want to be making magic items. Or they're, I'm going to be leading to a forge cleric. So you can say in session zero, hey, here's how the world, the economy of my world works in general. Broad strokes. I'm, I'm not asking anybody to be a money changer. But Similarly, I'm not asking anybody to be a weapons dealer either. 
So just be aware that right. I don't want to go into that. That's not the story mode I'm in. If that's where you want to go with being able to build weapons, that could be that w- there could be some challenges there. If you want to go with, I'd like I'd like to make one item for each of my players over the course of the campaign. I'm down with that. I think that's awesome. Doable, right? And you know that's something yeah. where we can do. I want to make 50 items for each or of the players, or build something special for the person without dark vision. Yeah, uh, it, you know things like that. I think are are very useful and and reasonable. That allows your player to utilize their abilities and feel like they matter. Because when that player builds that weapon that saved the day for the for the for the cleric, or that saved the day for the thief. They feel like they landed that blow, even if they're not the ones who are always dropping the hits. And I think that's what that's what we're really going for. So this sounds an awful lot like sort of a storyteller fiat say no kind of scenario. And so I want to try to go ahead and change these answers from no to a no but or a no and you know kind of kind of try to give the players. I would think it's more of a maybe and here's how. Or a, a, a yes, or a yes. Yeah, if. But he's just trying to clarify for us and yeah. make it a little bit more clear. So well, let's right. let him yeah. and and I'll, let's be honest. And 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 uh, uh, Rick, I'm not, I'm not I'm not like trying to like target you on this, but oh no, don't don't. Say, Go ahead. If you tell if you tell me as a player, okay. So I want I, I'm saying Josh wants to make magic items, and you're giving me your rules to say, okay, well, if you want to make the you know the, the biggest magic item, it's going to be a 50 week process. That's basically a no wrapped in a mechanical way to say yes, right? Right. And 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 because if the rules are prohibitive, then it's basically a no, right? Right. And so yeah. I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say is I want to I want to see, and I'm not necessarily saying that we can even. There may not be a way to go ahead and square this circle and make it permissible uh, without making the items arbitrary and 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 sort of thing like that. Uh, I I, just, I guess I just want to you know we try to be storytellers that don't say no period we yeah. try to be storytellers that say no but or no and uh, right and i'm not sure that there's a way to go ahead and do it in this so that, that's kind of my first statement i was hoping that i would have some flash of brilliance as i was asking the question and i really didn't have one so <laughs> this might this might be the one no period type issue the other thing is that how does this factor into a character who's playing an artificer who you know like you said uh, uh a forge cleric is going to drive towards making magic items for the party. That that's that's part of the goal of that subclass. How do yep. artificers factor into this also? Because they are also a class that's driven on making magical items. Like we didn't even touch on the whole potions aspect, but like you have an alchemist artificer, their their singular goal in the party is pretty much to go ahead and be making potions to keep their companions upright. So how do we wrestle with that here too? Yeah, you asked the question and I will give a brief as brief an answer as I possibly can muster and then cede to Glenn who's playing an artificer. Artificers that I'm aware of, almost everything they do is limited by time. Like they're not they're only good till the next one they make. So they're not they're by definition impermanent. So that oh, they're not permanent. Yeah, that's true. Right. So that doesn't factor into the the specifics of the discussion we're having here. I think it's built on the basis of make your magic items because they don't last or you're limited by number. You can't make an economy of it. However, I did talk to a player who said if I was an alchemist and people could I could make something that had charges. I make it with charges. I shoot one charge off. They're like, oh yeah, that works great. I sell it to them at top dollar. When I make one a day later, that one stops working. 
Um, and they don't know. That's it. Actually, I've got a character in my game who does that. Yeah, I've got this, I've got a character in my game who does that. So that might be the character I heard about then. Um, yeah, that, that's so what I mean, which is shistily <laughs> fun. Yeah, and, and honestly, <laughs> I think that I love that. I, I I would not say no to that because, but as a storyteller, at some point he's going to do that to somebody who has a gang, an army, a kingdom, a coven of witches, something that's right. going to come People back gonna and be say, after him at some point. Yeah, you're you're you can do that, but every now and then it's not going to go well for you, or they're going to go back to a town where they remember him from years ago. Now they can't get information, or they can't get a cheap place to stay, and long rest is not possible. But those are narratively right. built results that I love. What I would say to the to the question about how do we say no and or maybe maybe and versus no period, uh, I think the answer is is a combination and you're going to have to figure out what works as for you as a storyteller from a record keeping standpoint for your players and what they're going to enjoy and what's going to and what's going to narratively flow and finally Quite honestly, just the meta, have the conversation about your goals in session zero. But I think the answer is three things. MacGuffins, time, and meta. You can build the weapon you want, but you got to go get item X, Y, or Z at the top of Mountain uh, Z. If you, you you have to get that first. So now there's at least an adventure to get it. Right. They can't do an economy if there's an adventure to get the thing that makes it work. So if you build that into your homebrew mechanic, you're letting the player know it can be done and you're willing to write the adventure to let them do it. The time, it doesn't necessarily have to be the 52 weeks. Maybe the answer is it's 52 weeks of solid work. You can't adventure for a year straight unless you get the MacGuffin. So you've given them options. Now you're sandbox. You've got a choice of how you do it. I like that. And then finally, uh, the meta, which is, in session zero, and occasionally you'll have to remind them, set the overall expectations. And if you're doing those three things or some combination, you're probably going to come up with something that's fun for everybody involved. Player gets what they want. You get to manage your game the way you want. Everybody right. enjoys it. I love the way that you described that, Lee. I agree 100%. I think that part of the reason that we all wind up a little bit uh, stymied especially when we're talking about no but or how to talk to our players, is that sometimes we think that session zero is a one-time thing, right? It represents a collaboration between you and the players to make the game work together, and it's ongoing. So when I was talking about telling the player, you know, you could do that, but that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be making a hard, me making a hard and fast rule. It's going to be my player just came up with something that I hadn't considered before that could drastically affect the scope of the game. So I need to think about it and how it's going to affect the game. And then the conversation isn't, no, you can't do that. Or no, you can't do that. And this is why it's, hey, I really like where you're trying to go with this. These are the problems that I see. It's a conversation. It's a collaboration. So if it's, I want to break your world and make magic items as an economy and we're going to fund everything we do that way, then yeah, I'm going to go to, that's a full-time job. Yeah. If it's something more in the middle, then we're going to, we're going to work it out together. Absolutely. Uh, and I said meta, but that's exactly what I was going for. So that is definitely a much better way to phrase that. Um, I would also add that I, I am blessed with the players that I have played with in the past and that I play with now. With very few exceptions, I have never had a player who willfully said to me, I want to break your game. There are players who've had suggestions, and that wasn't their goal. And because I hadn't learned some of the things I now know, 
allowed my game to be broken, but that was never the goal. And there, are, and I am sure that those players are few and far between. So I don't want anybody listening to the, to the four of us thinking as a storyteller, I have to be careful because everybody's out to get me and crush my game. While there are individuals like that, that is not the bulk of the people. If you walk into your standard game shop, that is not who's sitting at those tables begging for a DM. And it's less prevalent than it once was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 5e... Because the attitude of the game has changed. It used to be very much us against you. Right, right exactly, because it was storyteller versus players, so players wanted to. Players also viewed themselves as adversarial to the storyteller. Now that we're approaching this in a much more like, all of us are sitting down to play a game. Yeah, oh, totally, we all did, yeah. But now we're all looking at it like, nope, the seven of us are all playing a game, all of us are playing different characters, one of us, one of our characters just happens to be, you know, the old guy in the red robe, one of us plays a lot of characters. Yeah, so because because that aspect, that meta aspect of the game has changed, I think we are uh, able to, and I use this phrase all the time, as often as Josh is, I'm super excited and chuffed to be here. I can say we live <laughs> in a golden age. We absolutely do. We're in an age where this is happening more and more. We as a hobby are doing better and better at collaborating. So don't look at this as, uh, as a negative, look at this as a, as a challenge, have conversations, listen to podcasts like ours and, and Rick's, read blogs, go out there, research. There are hundreds of homebrews. I'm sure, Rick, you alluded to it. You went out and read a bunch of homebrews and kind of picked the pieces that you liked and kind of yep. mushed them together to get what you want. That's I do it all the time. We all do it. That that That's how you do this. We collaborate to get it's to the right answers. Podcast. You know, so we can have a better experience for everyone to include ourselves. We want a more enriching game. We can't, as storytellers, can't have an enriching game if you, the player, are not engaged. So we're asking these questions to give you that level of engagement. All right, everybody. Uh, so let's put a cap on this episode for today. Uh, Rick, this was a fabulous conversation. We're so glad that you came on today. Uh, can you let our listeners know where they can find your podcast? Uh, yeah, you can uh, you can find the Snapping Dragon Tavern on pretty much uh, any of the podcast providers. I'm on uh, Twitch. Uh, I stream the live play sessions at uh, twitch.tv slash Snapping Dragon Tavern. Um, and you could also find me on Twitter at Tavern Dragon. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we hope that everybody out there uh, enjoyed uh, the conversation today. Uh, and <laughs> if uh, any of these tangents, uh, I would imagine that some of them are going to become their own episodes. So I would expect to hear more, particularly about the collaborative rule building bit, because, uh, boy, that went on for a while. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're building a, a backlog of future episodes as we go. But today was great, Rick. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. This was, this was I did, too. Yeah, great. And it was a whole lot of fun. It was wonderful. All right. And we will talk to you again next time. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our side quest series. 
where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.